hello and happy Tuesday for those that are tuning in on release day. Today, we're going to be talking about sorting perspectives of addiction and recovery. They're going to be excerpts from my book to those left behind, and a link will be in the description if you want to look it up and possibly purchase it. The purpose of today is for us to look through how different modes of treatment affect recovery, particularly of addiction. This can also apply into other cases of mental health disorders, but in order to give a little bit of specifics here and something that might be useful to anyone listening, we'll focus mostly on alcohol and substance abuse. When it comes to recovery, there are many modes that clinicians and doctors use to help treat someone. We'll go over those today, um, and you can follow along in my book if you'd like. Um, the chapter is going to start on actual page one. There's a little introduction that's in Roman numerals, but if you go to page one, it starts in the chapter named Therapy from Bob Newhart. Give a little disclaimer if anybody's ever seen the old Mad TV, this is where that, that reference comes from, Bob Newhart giving therapy, where he just screams at this woman to stop it, and I thought it was hilarious. So if you ever wondered, that's where that name comes from. So the first one we're going to be going over is the moral theory. This is the type of treatment and intervention that's focused on the, the emotions and the values of the individual, as well as those that are involved around addiction itself, but aren't addicted. So moral theory was one of the primary ways that treatment was conducted. Probably the greatest example of this is, a, is an organization called Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Now, they've since changed uh, vastly from when they started, but if you go back and research into some of their history, there was a movement of mothers, and rightfully so, that were angry about how drunk drivers had affected or killed family members. And so this was a way for them to try to intervene and honestly kind of cleanse their soul some. And so the reason that I bring Mothers Against Drunk Driving up is because while they may have shifted over the years, the initial point for them is to engage in a moral and ethical or a religious sense in order to make a change. You see some of this as well in groups like Alcoholics Anonymous and AA, where the intervention is not based on medication or diagnoses, but more who someone wants to be particularly around their character. And the last example of a moral theory, I think in some degree works in the D.A.R.E. program. For those that remember the D.A.R.E. program back in the day, a lot of it was around this whole just say no idea. On the surface, that sounds great, except it appeals to a moral high ground it is not assumed by children usually. And so what all of these have in common is they try to reach an individual's 
ideas. They try to appeal to a higher sense of authority or meaning. Now, the moral theory certainly has some value in it. Sure, the, we should always appeal to people's character and what they want for their lives. Moral theory struggles when it comes to anything outside of immediate decision-making and identity. There's that gap in the middle that moral theory misses. They assume that there's an A to B relationship. If you believe that you will then do this thing. When in reality, a lot of addiction and recovery is A to F, A to M. Sometimes you get a little forward and you take a step back and it's A to A to G and back to C and you make it to M. So moral theory misses that gap in the middle. Again, there's a great idea in it, but it struggles with how change is actually made. So the outcome of a lot of moral intervention is it utilizes shame. And shame, for anyone who's been in addiction, is toxic, but is what they've used the entire time they were addicted. So moral theory can end up playing into the exact same mechanism of shame that kept someone addicted in the first place. The next theory that we'll talk about is called the medical theory. Now, it differs slightly from some of the others that you'll hear, so I'll be quite specific on it. The medical theory comes from a lot of the treatment of other medical disorders. I talked in the previous episode about how when someone in addiction or someone with a mental health disorder shows up to an ER, they're treated much like the person next door or across the room that has a broken arm, someone who has appendicitis. We treat symptoms. The medical model or the medical theory has been incredibly impactful in our understanding of addiction and recovery. No longer do we see addiction as simply a choice or a moral failure, but we can start to measure how the brain and the body shifts, how we can see people morph over time. This is more than just what it looks like on the outside. Anyone who's been in true long-term addiction and has began the road of recovery knows that one of the first things that their loved ones say to them once they hit recovery is, you look so much better. Face gets fuller. There gets some color in it. And in medical theory, we understand why that happens, but it extends even further beyond just outward appearance. We've started to understand how the brain works, how neurological wiring is played into addiction itself. And so not only do we have the simple biological side effects of addiction, but we can see how the brain is influenced both in the moment and over time. This has been incredibly valuable when it comes to things like Narcan. For those of you that are unaware, this drug is the primary reason that we can bring people back from overdose. It's almost considered a miracle drug. It's just a 
spray nozzle in the nose if someone has taken an opioid and they've had an overdose and their body is shutting down, Narcan is the life-saving drug, and that comes purely from the medical theory, this medical model of treatment, of treating symptoms. The biggest drawback to medical theory, particularly around addiction, is the idea that addiction is a disease. I'm sure many of you listening have heard that before. Well, addiction is a disease. It's a brain disorder. So therefore, we should treat it much like cancer or type 1 diabetes. There's a big problem with that, though. First and foremost is that we haven't found a gene for addiction. We found patterns of brain waves. We found commonalities and reactions to substances. But I'm not a determinist, and I don't think most people are either. Just because you have a tendency towards something doesn't mean that you're doomed to be in it. Now look, I will never be an astronaut. My parents lied to me. I cannot be whatever I wanted to be. You might ask, well, why not if you try hard enough? Well, the problem is I'm too tall. I don't fit. Addiction is different than simple biological realities. Because we have over-applied our understanding of medical identification into human behavior, and particularly addiction. Addiction is not like type 1 diabetes, where you're just born with it, you have to manage it. And it's actually incredibly defeating, not only for the addicts themselves, but for the family around them. I can't tell you how many partners and families of addicts that I've worked with that have been told for years on end that it's no one's fault that their partner or their parent or their child is addicted. On the surface, that can sound comforting, but in reality, that creates a huge problem. Because if it is something like type 1 diabetes or cancer, you can't get mad at it. How can you be mad at someone with type 1 diabetes? Sure, you can be upset with them for not taking their insulin or watching their blood sugar. But ultimately, it's behavioral, right? See, here's the thing. When we over-medicalize addiction, we fail to engage in the humanity and the decisions that are made over decades— We're only left with treatment related to symptoms and history, not decisions or beliefs. This is where the medical theory falls short. It's that it assumes that because we understand something in a certain capacity, therefore that must be how we should treat it without consideration of other factors. If it's not measurable, it's not treatable. I would contend that that only keeps people addicted forever. You can see the end result of a lot of these ideas and things like indefinite suboxone treatment, where you can get a government-sponsored intoxication or effect on your body with a drug that was 
initially sold as a short-term solution becomes a terminal diagnosis. And I refuse to believe that my clients in addiction are terminal. The next theory, one that comes particularly from psychology, is the behavioral theory. Now, if you've ever been to therapy before, you've probably experienced a significant amount of behavioral therapy in your own work. It works like this. If there are a pattern of behaviors that we can predict, then we can interrupt them and change them. If it's not behaviors, it might just be thoughts. And if we can change the orientation of someone's thinking or the direction in which they move in life, then they can change the outcome of their behaviors. Because of this, we've seen significant growth in many kinds of mental health disorders, which is absolutely fantastic. Even for low-level issues, behavioral theory is a lot of times all that people need. This is where you get a lot of skills training from is behavioral theory. This therapy is great for short-term issues, and it can even show significant promise for more severe psychological issues and helping people gain an understanding of what's happening. Aside from simply teaching someone skills or ways that they can improve or change, I believe the magic in it isn't that someone can follow a series of steps, but they gain a belief that their life can be different and there's a reasonable way to do so. It's why people follow through on skills. They've worked, and so they begin to build this belief that their life could be different. Behavioral theory starts to struggle in the long-term, deeper issues that people struggle with. If you talk to enough drunk people, if you talk to enough people who are high or intoxicated, do they talk about behavioral patterns, or do they talk about big things, like being a failure, or even God? I believe that there's a limit to behavioral theory where we can gain an understanding, but we don't find peace for the soul in it. And this is where behavioral theory falls short. The next theory that we're going to talk about is neurological theory. It's honestly one of my favorites, and it's way too complicated to just talk about in a podcast episode, and I didn't even get to talk about it enough in the book. But I'll give you the short version. Over time, we've learned to better understand how the brain works and what it does and why it does what it does. It's given us not just a roadmap for how people function, but it can create a sense of empathy for those who have not experienced addiction themselves because when they can see just how impactful addiction is on the brain, when they can understand how much it morphs and mars neurological wiring, then they start to understand just how difficult it can be. Neurological theory has provided incredibly useful insight, not just into 
how addiction works, but how recovery works. The addict's favorite neurochemical is dopamine. If you look up anything about dopamine, you'll find that it is a very reactive chemical, but one that addicts abuse. Dopamine is the feel-good chemical. And there's a whole bunch of different ones that are useful in addiction and recovery, and you can find that in the book. But for our usefulness here, dopamine is the way that addicts paste over their issues. And neurological theory teaches us not only how that works, but how long it can take to repair it and what is useful in repairing it. Neurological theory also helps us understand that the pathways that addicts have created in their brain don't usually go away. And we can see how those scars that are left on the brain stick around and it can help us understand what we need to do to help someone effectively receive treatment and recover. So for that reason, neurological theory is incredible. But it suffers from one of the same issues that other theories struggle with. And that is that it over-applies its usefulness. I said earlier that I'm not a belief in purely determined behavior. You cannot just predict exactly what someone is going to do because you've seen their brain scan. We can make decisions that are not only unexpected, but can seem widely illogical. Self-preservation cannot be the only thing that the brain is useful for. We also search for meaning. This is the reason why the proverbial soldier jumps on the grenade or the parents throw themselves on top of their children when a natural disaster happens. And so this is where we start to find my favorite theory, attachment theory. It's something that I use when I work with all of my clients, addicted or not. Attachment theory works like this. Over time, children develop connections, and they learn about the world from these connections, but they also learn about themselves and their sense of place and value. The beginning stages of this attachment begin in infancy. When a newborn is hungry or they're tired or they're scared, do the caregivers show up? When they feel overwhelmed because of the chaos of the world, are they comforted? This moves into childhood where you have many kids who not only just need the physical comfort, but they need the emotional and relational reassurance. This then moves into relationships with friends and then into a significant other. Not only do these relationships tell us how the world works and who we are, but they start to define what the world is and what the purpose of living is. This is useful in addiction and recovery work because you can apply these addictive issues to attachment needs. Again, all this information is in my book, but I'll lay out the basic framework for it. In attachment theory, we have four basic needs. We need a secure base to launch ourselves from. We need a safe haven to run to when we're scared or overwhelmed. 
We have to deal with proximity maintenance, distance from the thing or person that makes us feel safe, and separation distress, how we deal with a distance from that thing or person that makes us feel safe. In addiction, all these four needs are immediately highlighted. That drug or alcohol not only has us feel centered, at least for a short time, but it helps us interpret the world. Addicts will go to their addiction to understand every relationship around them. It's the safe haven where addicts go. It's the place that they run to when they're overwhelmed and can no longer deal with the struggle anymore. It's one that won't leave them. If you've ever worked with someone in addiction or lived with someone, you know that proximity maintenance is a big deal. You can see it through a stash, through keys to a car, through a phone. It's a way that addicts will deal with their quote-unquote safe place being a distance away from them. The last one, separation distress, is immediately apparent when withdrawals start to hit, when the high comes down and the addict needs to find a way to connect again. I made a criticism earlier of medical theory and neurological theory that it overassumes what's happening. Interestingly enough, anyone who's been in addiction can tell you that they can have the shakes, as it's called, or they can have withdrawal symptoms up until the point when they're driving to go get their alcohol or drug of choice or their dealer is on the way. All of a sudden, those symptoms subside, even when they haven't had their substance in their system. Attachment theory is also useful outside of addiction, and that's why I particularly like it, because it does not assume that addicts are special. It assumes that they live in an extreme. All of us have issues with these four basic needs. Addicts have just found exclusive engagement with the substance itself. Now, does attachment theory tell us how the brain works? No. Does it tell us about the usefulness of drugs like Narcan? No. But if you're looking for long-term recovery, you have to know why those basic needs are being met in addiction. Why haven't they been met? Is it because the person feels like they're not worthy or they've been rejected? I would argue if those basic needs are met on not just an individual level, but are met over time in a sense that changes a person's belief and understanding of themselves, there's no need to be addicted. You don't need a synthetic jolt of love and care. You don't need the warm hug through the sharp needle because you found actual safety somewhere else. If any of this has been interest to you, go back and read through that first chapter of the book to those left behind and see maybe how your view has been colored by different theories and consider ways that even if you aren't an addict yourself, you can see yourself in addiction. Thanks so much for listening today. Again, my name is Travis Thompson. This is the Bold Lines Podcast. If you do feel so inclined, you can leave a tip so I can pay the producer. If not, I hope you have a great day and you use the things that you learned today to help yourself and others as well.